This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast, which is brought to you by ERI Design, a boutique marketing agency with offices in Portland, Maine, and Worcester, Massachusetts. This podcast explores the ways in which people express and experience various aspects of their social and personal identities. I'm joined by my supposed doppelganger, Brandon Thomas, who I've been mistaken for more than I would have ever imagined. Despite that, I'm fortunate to have him as a colleague and regular thought partner. I'm even happier to have him as a guest to talk about how he moves through the world as a Southern black man. Enjoy the episode. You already got it, man. You already got it, big dog. It's, I'm here. Hey, I feel like this is a moment. I, I knew we had a good relationship, but I didn't know our relationship was this good. Yes, sir. Come on now. Hi, <laughs> right, Brandon Thomas is here with me. He is an instructor in health at Phillips Exeter Academy. We've been working together now for about five years, right? Has it been five, five years? Oh, yeah, yeah, five years. Oh. We in our sixth year of this relationship. Time flies. Yes. Um, yeah. And I still remember the first time I met you. I think you were wearing salmon colored pants. Hey, somebody got to keep it sexy in these streets. <laughs> and I'm like, man, this dude's got confidence, swag, salmon pants. And really, when I think about Brandon, um, the first thought that comes to mind is uh, or one of the first things that comes to mind for me is the man is sophisticated. He can dress. I, I, hey, listen, I appreciate that. Coming from a guy who wears rugby's. So, <laughs> listen. <laughs> I got to rep the 90s, man. Got to rep the 90s. Go. Let's go. Your style, your your swag and everything. I know that comes from home and you'll speak to that shortly. And before we go there, how do you identify? Black man, black southerner, educator. Those are the things that come to mind. Now, when in your life did you realize that you were black? And before you answer that question, because I know some people are like, what is what? Like, what kind of question is that? So a person said, hey, you know, I didn't realize that I was black until I came here to the United States. And I'm looking at this person like, what? Like, hold on. All you got to do is look in the mirror. It ain't hard to tell. (laughs) And what she what she was communicating to me, though, was where she was from. Everybody else was black. And then she came here to the Northeast and suddenly the demographics looked very different. And so she started to really notice her racial identity. And that helped me realize that um, the setting matters in terms of how people identify. And unfortunately, many of us as black folk come into this or come into our racial identity through a traumatic story. But anyway, I don't want to assume that's your case. So when did you realize you were black? To 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 kind of ride along or ride the wave of what you're coming on, the, the South has a way of, of painting very bright lines. Mm-hmm. So the South has a way of explaining to you very quickly 
uh, what you are and who you are. Right. So I realized I was black. I think I was in kindergarten, maybe maybe a little bit younger, maybe pre-K or something like that. And I wanted to, um, to go out with this young uh, white girl and uh, her name was Allison Jordan. I don't know where she is, but I wanted to date her. And um, hold up, hold up. Before you continue the story, you were in kindergarten and you wanted to date somebody like you man, had money to be going on dates. Listen, I, you know what? I, I was just going to share the juice at, at recess and hope for the best. You know what I'm saying? So I wanted to date Allison Jordan. And uh, the teachers told me, you know, young black boys and young white girls can't date each other. That's that's just not uh, a comfortable thing. And I was like, oh, OK. All right. Didn't think. Anything. Hey, hold up. The teacher. And the teacher told me that the teacher told me that. Yeah. So I knew very early on that my experience would be different, um, even as a young five, six year old. How did she say this to you in those words verbatim? Uh, Brandon, that can't be your girlfriend. You you know what you look like. You know what she looks like. Now, if you want to date a cute little black girl, that's fine. But her, it's probably not a good idea. Do you remember how you felt in that moment? You know, I was too young to, to truly process it. I was like, hmm, that's odd. Okay, nobody's ever told me that before. Yeah. And then, you know, you you five, so you just like, okay, where's the Legos? Dang. Did you go home and tell your mom this? Of course, man. Mm. And how did she respond? I, I don't think she, I think she got caught off guard. I think we think parents have all the answers. And I think I caught my yeah. mom with the left yeah. hook. Yeah. Yeah. And she yeah. came in with something like, um, don't worry about it. You'll find a person for you. So she stayed high level. She didn't really explain all the nuances. She just said, don't worry about that. You're kind of young right now. We'll, yeah, we'll yeah. talk a lot more about this as you continue to grow older. You know, interestingly, I was also in kindergarten when I realized I was black. My godmother told me to be careful for the, the neighbor next door because he's a racist. <laughs> I'm like... Mm. I mean, at, at my age, it's like, what is a racist? You came in hot. <laughs> yeah. And um, and more specifically, she said he doesn't like black people. Right. Which still was a conundrum for me. I'm like, OK, well, he has right. an issue with black people. What's that got to do with me? <laughs> Until I kicked my ball into his yard and he was like, if you ever come into my yard to get your ball, I will shoot you. Right. Kindergarten, wow. bro. Kindergarten. Wow. Yeah. And it gets worse after that. But like the first several years of my life were bad, man. By the time I was eight years old, straight up, you'll ask my mom and she'll tell you the same story. When we drove into white neighborhoods, I was ducking in my car because I was scared. Yeah, yeah that emotional trauma, man. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's tough. You, you know, as you, as you talk about that, I remember being like literally 12 years old. I, I remember it. And my mom like set us all down. Me and my brother, we we two years apart. Um, so he he might have been 14, right? And I think she had talked to him about this, but she was like, hey, listen, y'all out, out here, y'all playing these sports, y'all a little taller now. Hey, listen, like, I'm just letting y'all know right now, make sure you make it home at night. And we didn't really kind of comprehend, but she yep. was like, hey, listen, come home all the time. Like it's and she said something to the effect of it's certain people who will who won't see you as kids. You need to make sure that you're doing whatever you gotta do to come home. And I was like, all right, cool. So she was already like priming us really, 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 really young, really, really early. And of course, there there would be situations, and Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, is where I'm from. Yep. So it it informs a lot of like the way out, the way in which I see the world. And my grandfather, sometimes I'd be like, "Oh man, Granddaddy, you know, you would get like a project, and like projects weren't as nuanced as they are nowadays, sure. right? Projects would be like um, if you have a family member, talk to them about." Uh, 
it, whether or not they have any experience with Jim Crow, right? And, you know, you go home and you just be like, so grandfather, you ever experienced racism? And he, was, and he would say things like, uh, the man down the street had a nice car and they took it from him, right? As you get older, you process those things. And what you found out was, it was a gentleman who lived like two doors down from my grandfather. And he bought this really nice car in the 40s or the 50s. Yep. Police didn't want him to have it, so they just took it from him. Like what? That, was, that was a tweet, yeah. So it was the South, and and that's what you could do, and it wasn't a whole lot of recourse, you know what I mean? So when you, whenever you get in that stuff, you, you don't really understand like the the that the heaviness and the weight of all of it, or you know just how toxic it was. But uh, it's it, the South is a unique place. And now the hard part in all of that, you're talking about the way your elders spoke to you about it, and now I'm a parent and having to talk to my own kid. Uh, my daughter um, is always the only or one of the only black girls in her class. And every day after school, I'm asking her, how did things go? I'm asking questions in a roundabout way. And we do have some more pointed conversations about racism, especially with the books that I give her to read. But I'm, I try to toe this line of keeping it real, being real, and also not terrifying her. Right. Right. But then, you know, last year she was telling me a couple of stories, things that were happening at school. And I just I felt the what the undertones or understood what the undertones were. And I'm yeah. like, how do I explain this to her and have her want to keep going to school? Because I know that when I had my experience at school, I didn't want to go back. And as a matter of fact, my aunt had to send me to a different school because right. I was like, I'm not going back there. Right. I'm done. Um, now, you mentioned being from uh, Myrtle Beach. What are some distinctive features about home for you? Well, you're going to get real good food. I, I'm, I'm putting Southern um, mm. food against any food in the world, and I'm I'm counting on them to come on top. So you're going to get really good food. But you also get a, get a side of racism. Um, <laughs> you're going to get a side of racism. And, and you also going to get, like, uh, like, really good vibes. I would not have been... I, I would not have wanted to be raised anywhere else than this, the, the place that I was raised. I think South Carolina gave me amazing values. Um, it gave me the ability to be outside, uh, the, the ability to, to, to make cert a certain type of mistake. And it was like really freeing in some ways. Um, it taught me how to work with my hands. It taught me to love the land. It also taught me like people enjoy and people thrive off of having bright lines, right? Mm -hmm. And I say that to say like, I think um, I live in New England now, and I think the levels in which racism show up is just very, very subtle, right? Sometimes people would say, like, oh, you can't see it, but you could feel it. You could feel it, and, like, yeah. it's kind of a bit more sheer in, in terms of it's it's in the, in the in the shadows. But in the South Carolina, like, it's really bright lines. Like, you knew where to go, what neighborhoods not to go to. You knew who not to talk to. You knew where not to sit. Um, the neighborhoods were largely growing up. The neighborhoods were. Hold, hold on, hold on. Did you have quantitative data to to qualify these um, accusations or or these thoughts you had about these uh, areas? And there's other data. There's the data from your elders who are telling you, "Yo, like three blocks down that way, that's not the move." It's not. So it's, yeah, please speak to that. A, I mean, you the the quantitative data I had was the number of Confederate flags that you would see on a truck or in front of a restaurant. It's like, hey, listen, we're not saying you can't come in, but I dare you to come in. You know what I mean? Hold on. I said truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pick Talk to truck. me a little bit more about these trucks and the flags. 
you you would see like it'd be a rage truck. It was typically red. They had the Confederate flag. Um, usually it was a Ford. And man, like it had loud pipes on it, and you pretty much knew what time it was. I remember, true story. We had a a, a place around the block. In the context, my neighborhood was largely black. Um, born and raised Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, near the coast. Um, if you go back a hundred years, this is where a ton of slaves were. But we had like a neighborhood that wasn't like it was close to ours, but it wasn't ours. And they would have like this billboard that would have like events, and like this was like the early days of like flyers, and there was like a flyer on there that said clan meeting tonight. And my mom didn't want me to see it. So she like, you know how you get out of the car and your mom just like, stop looking, just go. You know what I mean? It said clan meeting tonight. And I kind of looked and I couldn't see what it was, but I heard her talking later on um, on the phone and she was talking about her friend, like, oh, we got to stay away from this neighborhood because they got a clan meeting poster on the, on the board out there. Brandon, how old are you? Man, I'm 37, man. What year was this? If, the, if, if I'm 37, I think it was probably 30 years ago. So if it was 30 years ago, it was in the 90s. So clan meetings being promoted in the 90s in broad oh, yeah. daylight. That's a real thing, man. That was a real thing. That was a real thing. That's a real thing. People think it happened like so long ago. It's, it's like, nah. It, and it still it still goes on. I think uh, I think people largely think, oh, that's for the history books. People don't do anything like that anymore. It's like, nah, they do it. And they probably do some other stuff. I mean... Things continue to to evolve, and the Ku Klux Klan is no different, right? Wow. I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier, um, this project that you had, the project to ask a family member or to do some investigating about Jim Crow and how people around you may have experienced that. Did you learn more? You know, what, what I learned was that people didn't want to talk about it. Um, you were asked like very detailed questions or you were asked questions and people just kind of stone, stonewall you a little bit. Yeah. And I, initially I was frustrated because I was like, why isn't anybody telling me anything? And then like, like as I kind of got older and I realized the answers kept getting shorter and shorter, shorter and shorter, I realized there was like real trauma behind that. Like for me, it might be history, but for, for them, it was a lived situation, right? Yeah. And for context, my grandparents had to learn to read like almost in secret. Right. And this is the South in, I don't know, the uh, late, uh, late 30s, early 40s. So they had to kind of learn to read in secret. So it wasn't like, you know, they didn't value or appreciate certain things. But the way in which they had to get a lot of what they earned, got and, and were able to able to be afforded in life was literally through like being very quiet, working hard and, and not making any noise. And so they were taught, literally taught, like, you don't talk about what you saw. You don't question why such and such might have happened. You literally, you, you you shut up, you do your job, you you stay quiet, and you just try to make it to tomorrow. Yeah. Whereas you are a stark contrast to that because... Oh, man. <laughs> no, but really, I mean, you are very confident in how you carry yourself. When I think about you, again, it's swag. It's He's a renaissance man. And I'm assuming that through your socialization in the South, that's how you came to be. You, you picked up all of this in the South. Did you note differences when you came up North, particularly among black folks? You know what I'm saying? I think I think what it is, is I think uh, largely, which is super dope across the world, like black people are very consistent. I thought my neighborhood was the only one where people just sit outside all day. And I'm going across the world and I see, nah, black people just sit outside. That's what we do. We just yeah. sitting outside. We enjoying ourselves. We we having a good time. I thought in my neighborhood, 
we were just talking trash all the time. Everybody was joking on everybody. And I was like, nah, that's that's pretty universal. Yeah. So I think largely, in my humble opinion, the black experience is super unique, but it's transferable in so many different ways. And what I see in the between the, the, the differences in the north and the south is just how how there's a lot less bright lines in the north. I feel like going home, being in the south. It, it isn't segregated per se, but there are still neighborhoods where you say to yourself, hey, listen, yeah. that's black people over here and you don't go there if you don't look like those people or if you don't have some level of a pass yeah. to get into those spaces. Whereas in the North, I think there's a lot more of an immigration population or immigrant yeah. population yeah. in certain, certain spaces. And so you can kind of shape and shift in different ways, right? It might be Bayesian, it might be Haitian, it might be Puerto Rican, it might be Dominican, right? And yeah. all of those have like different varying types of black people. Whereas in the South, largely the the very small immigrant populations and a lot more heavy on black Americans. And so what you have when you have those different communities, right, is people are able to, to kind of move throughout space and be a little different and say things like, well, you know, I'm not black, I'm Dominican. I'm not black, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm not yeah. black, I'm, I'm from Cape Verde. Yes. You know what I mean? Which is a lot different in the South. You just like, nah, you black, right? Yeah. And I think um, that- Not like, African-American, but black? Black. People, people my name were not, nah, I'm black. I'm black. And it's yeah. pride in that, right? I think yeah. um, the dopest part about growing up in Myrtle Beach was like, you took pride in the fact that you was a, a black person. You loved MLK. Everybody got the same pictures in the glass case. Black Jesus, black Santa Claus, Barack Obama, Martin Luther King, and if you got a wild uncle, you got Malcolm X in there too. So you know what I'm saying. Hold up, no, Clarence Thomas doesn't make it into that. <laughs> As I'm thinking about this matter of North and South, the Black community in the North, particularly because that's where I grew up. You're right. Um, the neighborhood I grew up in was predominantly Caribbean. Mm -hmm. um, there weren't even West Africans in my neighborhood growing up. Um, and there were a handful, if that, of African-Americans. Most of us had parents from the Caribbean. Now, when I traveled south many years later, um, the first time I went down south uh, was to Virginia. I was dating a young woman, a Bayesian, and um, I went to visit UVA with her and her family. I remember getting out of the car at a stop to go to a restaurant and no lie, sign on the door, no coloreds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, this is 1999. Or right. 98. Lines. Like, right. Lines. I, yeah, I'm looking at the sign. I'm like, yo, that's like straight out of a history book. I, I'm shocked. I don't even know what to do with this. Right? So the other thing I noted, when I visited her subsequently after she enrolled, you know, I, I get out of bed, I throw on some sweats, and I'm walking around, and I'm looking around. I'm like, yo, people out here looking sharp. Like every day there, it was as if they came straight out of the salon and they were done up. Like it was not a thing to walk around looking informal. Fashion show. Uh, are you that's are you hearing what I'm saying here? That that's a thing, man. You know what? I, I this is what I think. I don't know, but black people in the South, man, they had to work so hard for everything, every single thing. So whenever you had a day off or whenever you could, 
man, you would you would just go all out and you do it big, man. And the one thing my mom and my grandmother and my aunts, my uncles, everybody always said is when you leave the house, you were a representation of all of us. Mm. You're not just representation of yourself. And so whenever you show up, you got to make sure you look good because you represent the whole neighborhood when you, when you go outside. That's why, and this I'm dating myself, and I don't care. That's why I always struggle with these kids who wear dirty white Air Force Ones. Listen, <laughs> white Air Force Ones, this is a PSA. <laughs> make sure they're clean. If they're not clean, take them off, man. Dirty Air Force Ones, dirty Chuck Taylors, it's almost like a, instantly I don't believe anything you say. You go dirty white sneakers. But that's a new trend, though. Folks just get the sneakers and find a dirt patch and get them real dusty and start walking and around. I repeat, <laughs> I don't listen to after what you said because I'm too focused on your dirty white sneakers. Oh my gosh. Wow. I'm kind of pivoting hard here um, because I wanted to make sure that I got this into the conversation, but um, you are a well-traveled man. It Someone. is an understatement to say well-traveled. <laughs> Does anybody else call you Young Global, or is that just me attempting to slap a nickname? I, I get some variation of that, but I, Young Global is exclusive. That's an exclusive. Okay, That's all right. Um, and should I continue with that? With Young Global? <laughs> please, please. So I'm Young sorry. Global over here has his footprints all over the world, and I'm just wondering um, where you've been and how that has broadened your perspective. Wow. So... At this point, I think I've, I've hit, you know, depending on what you consider a country, right? Somewhere around 52, between like 48 and 52. Right. Um, I mean. And were you able to travel a lot growing up, by the way? No, actually, in, until I, I didn't leave the country until I was 20, 26. Why not? Why were you averse to I, traveling? I, 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 you know what? Actually, I went on a few cruises as a kid, but it was like to the Bahamas and back. Like, I guess, you know, technically that's leaving the country. Um, but, uh, that wasn't really a thing. Like people didn't talk about like leaving the country. Like if you left the state of South Carolina, it was like a big deal, man. Like if you went to Atlanta, that was like, oh man, I went to the city. You know what I mean? Like it was really like low key. And as you grow older, as you like kind of think about some things, I was lucky enough to have a professor who uh, hit me up and was like, yo, like you got, he essentially was like, you got a lot of potential. Like do you want to help me on a trip to Ireland? And I was like, I don't really know, man. It ain't a whole lot of cats that look like me in Ireland. So I don't really know. He was like, trust me and go out there. I go out there and this was around the time where like Obama was getting like a lot of hate. Like nobody really wanted to be the president. Well, at least it sounded like that. And uh, people was talking like, no, Obama, is he really a U.S. citizen? And it was like that talk. So I thought that was like the, the international lexicon. Yeah. I go to Ireland. I'm in a uh, a bar with a woman who's from South Africa, who's in Ireland, and we're talking. And she's like, "Yo, your president is the dopest human being on earth." And I was looking around like, "You talking about the same one that the United States ready to get out out of the door? Like, what you mean?" Yeah. Oh my god, the way he talks, the way he comports himself. I was just like, "Wait, wait, wait, what?" And it was at that moment that I realized, like, the thought processes. And what we have going on in the United States is completely different of the thought processes processes, and what we got going on uh, globally. And it piqued my interest, and I haven't been able to stop um, leaving the United States since. I just think I'm on a quest to really try to understand the world, understand the way people think, understand the whys of, of the whys. And now I should have been more specific in my question and asked, how has it brought into your perspective about, about race and racism in general? 
actually, actually the, the the it's actually the inverse has happened. What I've actually realized is like the way in which I was conditioned. The way in which I was conditioned was to kind of see race first and then work away from that. Whereas a lot of times, sometimes, sometimes, and I, I truly think um, anti-blackness exists in all parts of it. Yep, yep. We start by saying that. But the way in which people process it is completely different. And the way in which race can be lethal in the United States is very different across the world. I think um, if you are in a, a difficult situation and you are a black person in the United States, no matter what part of, 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 of the diaspora you come from, it can be difficult. Whereas in you across across the world or globally, it's very different in terms of like I think people are generally just interested. We are very privileged and honored in the United States where we see different types of people every day, right? We can go somewhere literally. We can go to the Indian restaurant, the Chinese restaurant, um, the Dominican restaurant, the 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 Puerto Rican restaurant, and like that's that we can eat those four meals in a day. Whereas if you're in China. You might not see a person that's not Chinese for six, seven, eight, nine months. The only people you see that don't look like you is on television, right? Yeah. So I think the way in which I realized that my lens for how people would perceive me, the way I take up space, nobody's expecting me to steal anything. Nobody's expecting me to hurt them. People are literally just being, and I am I am having all the thoughts of, hey, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be so close. Maybe I should keep my distance. Maybe I... So it was really enlightening in terms of like how I have mentally, mentally prepared myself to be in different spaces yeah. um, versus like how people perceive me. So I really think um, being in the United States can be really difficult and can be e extremely draining yeah. in terms of just being a black person, like simply existing, nothing more. Yeah. And that's a, that's the tweet. That's a hard stop. At the same time, what I've learned is people are super duper curious about black people in general. Right. And that's across the board. And people are extremely curious about Black Americans because um, their idea of what uh, uh, people from the United States um, look like, how they comport themselves, how they interact, is, is very different than what they may get. And so you took the dope step of uh, starting an agency, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, people yeah, like me be trying to get information from you for free and you like, hey, I'm about to monetize this. I got a lot to offer and uh, yeah. you need to pay me $32.99 a minute. Uh, let's not. Don't do that. <laughs> please, please talk to me a little bit or talk to my audience about this new entrepreneurial venture and how they can link up with you to talk about their personal travel plans. So what, what what happened was like I started going to all of these different places and I started to see like bad tourism. Like <laughs> people would come to places and be like, why don't you have? Why isn't there? Why don't you speak in X, Y, Z language? And it was just like, man, this is like just like generally not knowing how to be a guest. And I and I was like, wow, people really struggle with being quality guests. And I can see why people don't want people from the United States um, to visit. So I was like, all right, cool. Let me stop complaining and actually do something. <laughs> Hold on, pause, pause. So I'm guessing you're about to tell me that um, you are about to be in the business of teaching Americans how to act before they leave, <laughs> before they travel. That is so wow. Like, I am so thrown by this. Anyway, sorry, continue. <laughs> you know, um, I, I really wanted people to, to be more thoughtful when they travel. And so I created international access. And my goal is 
um, to make sure that individuals not only can develop the tools they need to, to travel internationally, but also like be uh, a conscious and thoughtful traveler. Um, whenever you go somewhere, right? I, and I'm a guest, right? And you don't speak the language. Like now I make it a practice. Whenever, before I show up, I learn at least hello and thank you. And I don't care how hard that is. Um, hello, please and thank you. And I think that's just just having general manners. People appreciate that effort. People appreciate those things. And I make a conscious effort of deciding where I spend my money. Every, anytime we go somewhere, whatever we spend outside of the United States, it is a conscious vote of what we support, whether that be a resort, whether that be uh, a taxi, whether that be a Uber. We voting on what we want every time we spend a dollar. And I just want people to be thinking about those things, how they comport themselves, what they think about, what they spend money on, um, um, who they talk to, who they interact with, who they book tours with. All of those things may seem really small. It seems like $30. It seems like $50, but it's actually a huge vote into what someone will do, right? And you don't want to change a place so much that you the reason why you're actually going there will leave in five years. If I show up at a spot, and I keep saying, well, I wish it was more like this. And I wish it was more like this. People listen. They change things and it becomes more like that. And now you're going to the United States and Vietnam instead of going to Vietnam. Mm. Right. You want that. And now how can people learn about this business? Do you have a website, an Instagram account? Internationalaccess.net. You should shoot us an email. Um, we are live and in color. Um, it's me, myself, and a couple friends who also... Um, travel with me and and do amazing work. We are all from different parts. I'm a health and wellness um, instructor, and that is what I do by trade. But this is super. This is something I'm super passionate about, and I think everybody should have access to being able to go abroad. I think the way in which you will see the world, the way in which you will see problems, will be very different. Right? I think a lot of problems are local. What we deal with in Exeter, New Hampshire, is very very different than what the cats in right. North Carolina deal with, which is very different than the cats in large Massachusetts deal with. Right? So I think um, the way in which we interact with the world, it matters. And I think traveling really builds more compassion. Um, whenever you can see what somebody else is going through and see somebody else's problems, it looks a lot, a lot different. Like I, people think about global warming. <clears throat> and I was in the Amazon and people were like, oh, don't cut the Amazon down, don't cut the Amazon down. But I was in the Amazon and I was chilling with the folks in, in an indigenous community. Man, they're not thinking about your cell phone or they're not thinking about your car. They're not, they're not thinking about like, these ways they like i'm trying to eat right now so the way in which they interact with the same problems is very different right and so whenever you build up some level of uh, emotional mental thoughtful callous to somebody else's problems that you can dig so much deeper into how to really solve problems proximity broadens perspective and boom proximity breeds some level of compassion yep right on That was a great nugget to end the episode with, this matter of proximity broadening one's perspective. The closer you are to something, the more you're going to understand it. Sometimes being proximal occurs by happenstance, but a lot of times it's also intentional. Traveling to 52 countries is intentional. Leaving the South to live up North, then noting the subtle differences within black communities is also intentional. There was definitely a lot to take away from this conversation, but I wanted to make sure that I magnified that point and encourage you to get proximal. 
Special thanks to Brandon for coming on the podcast to process his experiences aloud with me. I hope y'all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Until the next episode of Identity in Me, keep reflecting. See